This is the multi-sport podcast for triathletes, duathletes, sportive riders, road racers, time trialists, runners, mountain bikers and fitness enthusiasts. Supported by No Pins, suppliers of number attachment systems, aero clothing, visit nopins.com and southfootracing.co.uk for all your biking needs. Whatever your distance and whatever your event, this podcast aims to make you smarter and faster. Welcome to the 135th, 4th, 4th, Smartcast, now in its 10th year of broadcasting. I'm Coach Joe Beer and I'm joined once again today by SouthFork.co.uk's Martin Crocker. Evening, Joseph. Good evening, Martin. How are you, all right? I'm well. I always sound suspicious when I'm smiling and talking. So, yes, anyway. you do, actually. So, uh, we have straight away a review, a customer review it. from Tony Orfeo, I reckon that's Orfeo, um, titled The Answers to Your Triathlon Questions and Even the Questions and Answers You Haven't Thought Of. So he says, this podcast is really just like your favourite supplement, knowledge is power, so you may as well learn from the best most impartial and genuine source out there. I think he's got the wrong book. <laughs> um, if you live far from your local tri-club or are new to endurance sport, these guys fill the void of confusion with clear, intellectual and well-articulated information. Definitely talking definitely about got you. The wrong podcast. No, he's got the wrong <laughs> podcast, actually, but we'll take credit anyway. Thank you to Tony. everyone who has had a hand in putting this together. Every tip and triggered thought process saves me personally time sweat and tears literally a must listen if you're serious about improving and doing all you can so thank you very much tony that's a really nice um review that you left at itunes on the 10th of february so if you want to check out that we're not making these things up go to itunes look at the uh, gbst.com podcast page and then click on ratings and reviews and by all means Add your rating. We're up to, uh, what, 36 out of 42 are five stars. And there are, I think, 28 customer reviews. So thank you for that, because we've lost some when there's been changes in the, the link of the website to iTunes, which has happened a few times over the 10 years. So the fact we're up to 28 and um, we're still uh, hopefully hitting the nail on the head, then thank you very much. And keep uh, nudging us to be doing the right thing. <coughs> I am so sorry. sorry. That's such an unprofessional move. I know, especially on the wireless. I'm choking on it. <coughs> right, I'll, I'll carry on. If, if Martin coughs it, or literally, then um, we, we might be in a situation where we have to say, we heard the last bit of him. It'd be a bit like Tommy Cooper, you know, you're just right in the middle of your best performance. All right? He's back again. So, we've also got a question. And this question... Is going to be read by Martin. Over to you, Martin. But the person that sent it wanted me to keep the um, keep the name anonymous. Okay, okay? no so worries. Just keep it keep it you know, anonymous. So, um, a question around plan planning in intervals in the pre-race spring season phase slash post-base winter training phase. In the run-up. 
to the start of the race season, are there any guidelines around fitting in intervals slash harder sessions across three sports, i.e. one day of harder interval work, maybe across two sessions, e.g. run in the morning plus a turbo in the evening, followed by a rest day, or spread the sessions more evenly across the week, mixing intervals and recovery sessions on each day. By the way, Crocker isn't permitted to say, that's right, that's the thing during the answer. I knew that was from, by the way. <laughs> okay. Um, good question, actually, because we are in um, a stage where I think, you know, we're moving out of a winter. A transition phase. Transition phase, which is what on, on the, the diaries of athletes, that's what in this one to two month window is, you know, some people call it, you know, the sort of pre competition the preparation certainly the transition from one to the other and i think yeah there is a sense that if you want to race well not just get round there is the need for those harder sessions to be done and it is a difficult thing of well, you know how much can i do particularly if you know this example is talking about um three sports if you've got just one sport, you know, if you're uh, a runner, a uh, you know, mountain biker, just a uh, time trialist, and, and you've only got the one sport, then you can potentially do two quality, perhaps three. I mean, we've got to look at whether you absorb it, whether you're going to bring your form on too quick and almost take enjoyable races out of the tank by the fact you've been smashing yourself in your own solo session. So how much time you've got first of all, changes how much of this pre-season um, phase, I think, needs to be done on your own and how much needs to be done on preparation events. If there's events and you want to get out and use events to build your form, I think it's a good idea to pick them. But if you are doing you know, this thing that uh, this uh, anonymous person um, has suggested, I think spreading them out sometimes is a good way of being able to isolate um, the intense part of your day and not have to try and repeat it again later. However, if you are crunched down and know you're not going to quite be able to guarantee that one of the sessions is going to happen, actually, two hard sessions in a day is possible because if you're talking three sports, you're using a different muscle group. I don't think you necessarily want to try and do your bike intervals and then in the evening do your run intervals. I think that's possibly overloading, but you could certainly do you know, a hard swim session in a morning scenario and then do a hard run in the evening. But then you are making sure that is a hard day. Therefore, the day after and the day before, you've definitely kept it soft, you've kept it short, and you know that you're probably not going to do the third hard session at least two to three days clear either side of that hard day. Because at a certain point, going really hard won't translate to you increasing your form. You just get more and more tired. Tired. Also, I think you can you can gain quite a bit from having a look at your, your work schedule. I mean, we're 90, I would say probably 95% of us um, have, you know, full-time, if not part-time work. So, you know, if you're going to have particular particular days where it's going to be, you know, pretty hectic at work or you've had a day that has been kind of pretty hectic, you've got a day off the next day, you might not feel as though you can dedicate, you know, your, your proper... Um, 
proper amount of, of effort to it because you've had quite a tough day the day before. But I think, again, just looking at work schedules, um, life schedule, you know, things like that, you can give yourself a rough idea now of, of you know, Mondays might be a bit quieter. Um, so for me... <clears throat> Monday's quite busy, but I've got Tuesdays off, so I can normally kind of have a decent session, one session anyway, on, on a Tuesday. Um, but if that means maybe having a bit of a tougher session on a Monday evening and then maybe a couple of easy sessions on the Tuesday, you know, kind of work it round a little bit. But like, but like Joe says, I think you just have to be really careful and not to not bring a, a peak on quite so quite so early and the flip side to that is not to get yourself uh, to the point where you think oh, I'm really going to have to slow down so. yeah yeah and there's you know there's the detail the detail in the question is you know fitting in interval slash harder sessions and a harder session could actually be that you're doing a long session not at race speed because that's in a race but you know a, a long session whereby it may just be in triathlon terms, you know, you're putting together a solid endurance bike, you're getting straight off and running. Um, and that takes a lot of total energy. That could be, you know, a three, four, blimey, five hour session for people moving into 70.3 and Ironman training. That's hard, but that's hard just from how much it takes out of your body. But it's different to the hard that you get from doing an interval session of maybe, you know, six lots of four minutes at uh you know 88 to 90 percent of heart rate max that's hard work but it's all over in the middle core bit of you know just over 30 odd minutes and you're done and that's hard physiologically and hard to get your head round. but it's a different kind of hard session to somebody that's thinking blimey i've got to get everything sorted for tomorrow i'm going to be training back to back four hours not just whistling, actually a, a modest mid-upper zone one session that is um, still going to leave you to some extent fatigued. And I think it's trying to work out also what are your key sessions that you want to do. Because you can't have a day where you go out on a, you know, triathlete-wise, a day you go out on a ride and then it starts being a bit of a of a hammer fest and starts being one of those sessions where it turns into a race. And then the next day you and you thought you were going to do your... Uh, intervals and as it turns out somebody wants to do intervals as well so you end up doing intervals that day and then the following day the swim session ends up being somebody that isn't looking at your plan throws in a hard swim set which you're in the middle of and then you start looking and thinking where where's the easy stuff to work on do you know what I mean you've got you've got to get the mixture right and I think the person hit the nail on the head by you know saying you know um you know, followed by a rest day or spread the sessions over the week. It, it's very individual to each person. But what we have to remember is there can only be so many sessions that are developmental per week. Some will be easy. Some will be shorter than others. It won't always be, oh, I have to train two hours a day or I have to do. No, because then you just you you lack the ability to vary the stimulus. And part of training comes from um, the instinct to know when you do a bit less so that these quality sessions, be they long term, be they high intensity, they've got to be the way to measure what you do. And if that means you've done less the day before and you do less the day after, it doesn't matter no, that your no. your volumes dropped a bit or, oh, no, I normally do such and such on a Thursday. Yeah, but if 
Friday is going to be, you know, a big swim followed by, you know, a bike to work. And Saturday is a bike followed by a run afterwards, which is going to be four hours. If you do those back to back Friday, Saturdays, Sunday, you don't want to go, oh, I'll do a long ride as well, because you're just going to be toast. And everyone has their individual level of absorption. And what you've got to work out is how much do you need to do? And the moment you start seeing progress, just tweak it slightly. But don't think, well, such and such does this and I've got to try and keep up with them, only to find that you're doing pretty lackluster training and at the end of it, you look like toast. That's it. And then, but, but also with that is, is I, I find it easier to plan it. You know, so go go to that session with a particular um, a particular plan and try and, you know, stick to that plan. If it's not going to come off, then you just go, right, well, I, I was going to try and do some hard stuff, but I'm, I'm finding it quite tough. Then just just back it off. You know, you're not going to lose anything by it. And then, uh, you know, wait till you've uh, had a couple of sessions or a rest day and then and then go again. So yeah, it was a good question. That. Yeah. And I think it it is a time to be thinking about how do you how do you next develop what maybe has been a good habit through the winter of getting certain sessions done but if you want them to actually properly develop there's got to be a certain amount of planning how do you yeah. extend how do you uh, start to turn something into you know um, a competitive effort and it doesn't sort of happen by accident and it certainly means that there are some sessions that won't be applicable if you've got your plan, you can't also do everybody else's. You've got to, you know, you can train with people and as long as there's a negotiation about what the session actually is all about, then you can quite easily train with people. But I think to pick what days you go um, hard is the key to being able to deliver. Because if we look at the research on um, the best way to train for endurance exercise, time and time again, and there'd be a, um, a piece in the in the research updates that i'll talk about and it just seems that you know three quarters or more of what people need to do whatever their level needs to be done at steady state so that means if you look at your week there can't be for most age group amateur people there can't be a lot of hard sessions or what you're doing is getting very good at making yourself tired and you won't absorb and you could be the hardest trainer that actually is the underperformer. The people that are good are the ones that do the training, but they're lazy enough to only do the hard work when they need to. And I think that's that's what sometimes gets turned on its head and people think, I'm just going to train harder than other people. I'm just going to push it all the time. And it's like, it doesn't work. And because it doesn't work, why take that as the starting point with which you're going to build your plan? Now, I'm just going to train harder than other people. I mean, you could train perhaps a few more hours. You could train and you could um, perhaps be very good at, at your recovery methods, but you cannot just go out and do everybody else's quality work. Um, we all know people that do that. And they're great trainers, but they don't ever deliver stuff that they should be able to because they're always over delivering in training and if if you look at what most of the um uh training diaries and successful endurance athlete um hindsight tells us is that most of the time you've got to be quite savvy about not pushing yourself and that's it most of the time so you only pick a few days two maybe three at the most and that's it whereas you know a lot of people don't do they they start seeing somebody a bit further up the road or they sort of think oh I feel quite good today I'm, I won't do a steady session I'll just go and do I'll do some speed work or whatever and it's so difficult to to get people not to do that and to get confidence from just picking the days to go hard the rest of it 
is moderately easy. And you, you do you do have a, a, a habit of doing. It. I think a, a lot of the the guys that maybe listen to this are good trainers. You know, yeah, they they enjoy the buzz of training. Um, but we all do it. We are inherently uh, uh, people that just love the buzz from training and probably go and do a bit too much or a bit more than you really should. Mm. Whereas the, you know the other side of that that training is is the recovery is 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 you knowing when enough's enough or or maybe looking at it and going oh, I, I i can handle three hard sessions a week but i'm not i'm not going to do three i'm going to mm. do two mm. and make sure other other parts of uh, you know my um three disciplines are either up to scratch hence it you know with it being equipment uh, nutrition making sure my recovery's up to up to scratch and then you know take a bit of a bit of comfort by knowing you've done a couple of hard sessions. Mm. You haven't pushed it to the point where you're thinking, oh, after two weeks or the third week of your maybe four-week block, you're just going, oh, I'm actually pretty ready just to, to kind of take it easy now. So yeah. I think it's, it's time to bring in this, right? This thing's called um, the Road to Gold, training and peaking characteristics in the year prior to gold medal endurance performances. So this is... Um, it's uh, it's readily available. It came out in July 2014. Uh, the link I will put the link. Um, I think via the JBST website is probably the best way. Actually, no, I'll tweet it because there's a there's a little Bitly link that I've made that means you just click on it and you can go straight to this um, particular research. But it's really really interesting. This is taking elite cross country skiers and biathletes. Um, Average VO2 max is 85 millilitres, right? Then you start going down the, the data and you find that one of them has got a VO2 max oh. of 92.5. Okay, so there are people listening just say, yeah, but they're, they're, they're different. No, they've got blood, they've got a heart, they've got kidneys and livers. And, you know, if you punch them hard enough, they cry. And if they trip over, there'll be blood coming out of the wound. They are human, but they're just exceptionally gifted. And they looked at their training and they did about 800 hours a year over approximately 500 sessions. 94% um, of the training time uh, that was um, executed as aerobic uh, endurance work. And of this, 90% of that was low intensity. Okay. So, you know, that's, you know, 90% of 94%. So you're talking roughly 80% of the total amount of time that they spent in their, their 800 um, hours per year was in this lower intensity zone. And they, they go further and they look at um, what the breakdown is. And, you know, they built from uh, their, their sort of peak was in, uh, in, in March and they were basically um this wasn't for the um for the uh, uh, olympic um uh preparation as per obviously summer olympics it's winter olympic stuff but when you look at it their training time was pretty much in the end of the um regeneration phase and they started back into training they were up to around 60 hours and it built up to roughly 80 hours per month in their peak general preparation then you had a couple of months of, of reducing the volume and they did more specific prep um and then it just dropped and dropped and dropped until the peak performances in march they were doing around 40 hours of training so 10 hours a week you know for for super duper 80 milliliters per kilo people 
Um, then they break it down further into um, the hours per month and how it's broken down. And um, Martin will nod and you'll see the nod, but there's a, there's a bar of um, colour that shows the proportion that zone one is within the um, training phase. And this is where, and I had a question today from a client, and this is where people get it wrong, is that even though they go into um, specific preparation before competition, then they've got three months, which for them is January, February, March competition, it still predominates that the most time is spent in zone one. They don't flip it on its head and suddenly start doing a lot, lot more. Okay, the, the frequency of um, high intensity sessions per month jumps in the competition phase up to around 10 a month and it built from the sort of early prep time it was six then it was eight then eventually it was 10 but they're just working harder if you like because their form is better but what they're not doing is flipping it on its head and doing hardly any okay when they get to peak performance yes they've dropped down to um, roughly 40 hours a month of which I'm guessing by looking at it it's you know it's still at least 30 plus hours are in zone one and the rest is is kind of like fluff but if you look at the amount of quality Martin's nodding again there isn't actually that much more um, quality work that they do as they get near to competition it's actually just that they drop the volume so there's always this sense there's loads of zone one and there's always a bit of quality there but it's the fact that they're just probably we don't look at the relative intensity but they're just getting used to working harder in those high intensity bits and as your form comes on the amount of work you can do in zone three just gets higher and higher um, and they look at the they actually really interestingly break it down into how much they do per month how much strength work how much endurance i mean you know in even like the um the, the peaking peaking phase i get it overall um you know they're spending about nine to 11 hours of their um, week in um, zone one. So they're actually doing, you know, some non-specific training, but they're actually doing um, a, a lot of work that, yeah, there's some, um, you know, 12 hours is endurance. They've got about half an hour of, of strength work. They've got a small amount of, of sprint work, but you look at the you know training time in in hours per week and it's about 12 or 13 hours per week it's not you know it's not absolutely bonkers hours yeah okay in general prep they're up to 18 hours per week but just because they got a high vo2 max they're not training massive amounts and i think that's where people can get this whole idea of training wrong just because you do more training you don't necessarily get fitter and fitter fitter you've got to get the proportions right for you to absorb and time time again this 80 20 or roughly 80 20 for many amateurs it's probably more like 90 10 is that 90 percent of what you do is better to stay in zone one and just basically allow your body to recover because you don't finish a session and put your feet up you've got to you know get to work you've got to get the kids to school you've got to suddenly answer 25 emails in 25 minutes and so you don't have the recovery that these people do where they can do their training and then just back off and sit down and chill um, and it's really interesting to look at this. There's a lot more about how... I was they... going to say, it, 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 this, the, the actual um, study is a bit more visual as well. So yeah, yeah. <clears throat> there's, a, there's a bit more to it than just kind of looking at the uh, very small writing with lots of funny big long words and, <laughs> and numbers on. But they, well, it's, it, it, most of it's graphs yeah. um, to show you, you know... Um, 
of peak volume of training hours you know and high you can see that can't you? i mean that's the good thing about graphs is you look at it and straight away you don't need to understand the numbers you can look at that and go oh yeah look the training time per week yeah is oh i see yeah look the number of hit sessions goes from you know roughly one to two ends up being yeah three okay yeah i can see that and there's a lot of the paper actually is devoted to the whole thing about peaking how they how they drop from week six down to week one they drop um, a kind of taper and then they reduce the volume um, only a little bit they, they're doing something that questions the whole intensity distribution and how often like even who took a rest day in the last 14 days before the um, the Olympics and at no point did even four people take a rest day in that last two weeks and actually um, their hit sessions were um you know about uh how many people were there in the group i'm just trying to see how many how many it says um 11 of them most of the time four or five or even six of them were doing a high intensity session as you were leading up in that last two weeks and it it questions therefore look these people know what they're doing this is questioning what we know a little bit about tapering so this is you know they're they they actually um didn't reduce their volume quite so much as is recommended they kept the volume up but they just tended to keep a little bit more high intensity there and um, it's, re it's really interesting and it's openly available it's free you don't have to um, spend your hard-earned on it and it gives an insight into look these are some of the fittest people you know biathletes um, and uh, cross-country skiers as shown by their vo2 max it's, it's quite phenomenal but you know, when you, you look at it, um, they say 23% uh, uh, of their training sessions are categorised as high intensity um, and training volume and specifically distribution um, conform to a traditional polarised model, i.e. you know, there's really low stuff and there's high intensity, um, but high intensity remains stable across the phases. So they always, because they're professionals and I guess they've got to keep that element there, they were always doing a small amount of high intensity training there. But also they were always doing for, uh, you know, for a lot of people, okay, there's not many people listening that will be doing um, the, the same sort of number of hours, but, um, you know, 800 per year is not, it's not up in the sort of, a thousand to twelve hundred it gets talked about in in cycling circles you know eight hundred per year when it's your job isn't a massive amount of hours when we're talking they were doing 13 hours per week there's, there's plenty of amateurs that think they have to be doing 15 to 20 if they're going to do an Ironman and I think it's really good to have an insight that sort of says you know this this is what they do and these are super fit people and um, you know in uh, in getting their peak performance they did a lot of time in zone one okay what they can do in zone one based on the fact they've got 85 milliliters per kilogram is probably mind-boggling hence they can keep their heart rate down but still do very productive training so i'll put the link to this um, particular it is study. well worth a read yeah definitely. and it's it, you don't have to understand it. it it's put across i think in um terms that are very readable sometimes they do there's some stuff now being done on you know on on genes and on people arguing you know certain terminologies and you start losing the point whereas this is just you know this is kind of like almost say look these are top athletes we're just going to tell you what they do and these particular piece people uh steven sealer and uh espen tonison are um they're just top 
sports uh, scientists that when they produce something paper-wise it's often of this high level and it really does give you an insight you don't have to copy it but you can certainly learn about how they how they do things by the fact that they do break down the zones pretty much fairly traditional yes their their zone um of endurance work does go up to 83% but it also goes down as low as 54% now it doesn't mean everybody that's been using the 80% threshold now has to chuck another 3% on because they're actually saying some of their sessions are down as low as um you know 54% of heart rate max and there's plenty of things now saying look 60% of heart rate max is an adequate training level and yet the amateur says no 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 that's too slow i can't do that um, it's not slow when these people do it and therefore I think a lot of people can learn that you know what you can actually get quicker by making sure the high intensity is there but also the low intensity is done low enough to allow you to do the high intensity it's that catch 22 if you do yeah. the high intensity too fast you can't do the sorry do the low intensity at too high a level you cannot because those sessions tend to be a lot of them and they tend to be the longer sessions you can't do that without it affecting your high intensity. You've got to kind of keep the low low to be able to do the high high. Yeah, but the, the other thing as well is uh, I think you, the the most common mistake that uh, that people make is they want to do the hard stuff too soon, and, and this is what we kind yeah, of yeah. we 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 harbour on about all the time. Harbour on about yes, really. So we, yeah, with with reference to people dying and bursting to get in involved in in kind of like when when you know itching when does when does the hard stuff start when is it well there's plenty of time for that especially if yeah. you're doing kind of um you're doing races so maybe cross-country running in 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 your preparation period mm, as it would mm. be and you're you know or um i don't know uh, longer distance swims and things like that so you know the the hard stuff will, will turn up and uh you you just either a have to be ready to either do it or B, if you've done too much of it, mm. it will just feel like a laborious <clears throat> chore. And there's a little, there's a little um, statistic here, and it will come up within, within other sort of, um, uh, I think other groups. Not maybe exactly to the letter, because it depends on what outcome. It would be different if you're talking, you know, pure Ironman athletes, but. It says um, there was a non-significant decrease of 9% in their low-intensity training from their pre-peaking phase to their peaking phase. So basically, they didn't drop off a lot in terms of the amount that they were doing in order to peak. They, they you know, obviously dropped a little bit, but they were focusing on the high-intensity stuff. And I think sometimes there's the view that, you know, in order to get speed work done that you've really got to dramatically flip everything on its head and almost ignore endurance work and the slow stuff and there's got to be a punch in everything you do and lo and behold the high intensity stuff does add on um, a certain amount of certainly adaptability to getting used to racing but it never makes somebody go so much quicker it's still working off the basis of an endurance um, pedigree that you add a small amount of speed and I think people think speed work is more potent than what it is I think it gets you good at pace judgment it gets you good at feeling what racing's like but it doesn't add 30% onto somebody's no. ability um, interestingly when they just get people to zone one train and they manipulate that such that they don't go over zone one 
they don't lose a lot of fitness. Um, often people say that they lose the ability in their head to be able to race, but the moment they dip their toe in, they realize it's actually there, but they haven't been using it. And the muscles, of course, get used to the high intensity. The more you want to be at Olympic level, you've got to have some high intensity there because you're demanding not just, oh, I'll see what I feel like. And if the race goes well, I might do quite well. You've got to be able to deliver. So you have to teach your body to be able to deliver all the time. And they are, um, uh, you know, in this instance and a lot of instances with um, um, peak performers, you know, they're classically in the, you know, mid upper 20s. So physiologically, they are um, very, very adaptable to this stuff. Add on 20 years and you've got to be very careful that you probably can't do, you know, 800 hours per year, even if you've got the time and you can't do, you know, um, the numbers of high intensity sessions and recover. And so these are the exceptions and they still do over 80% of their volume in zone one. And that's why I think for a lot of athletes, particularly masters athletes, bump that up to 90%, you're not going to lose out. And what you are going to do is enjoy the training stuff that is fun, technical work, whatever sport you do, you can have fun doing technical stuff. Um, and then when it comes to the high intensity, you really feel up for it because there's nothing worse than doing lots of volume and then getting to your quality work and you just can't deliver. And it isn't like, oh, oh that slow stuff's making me slow. No, you're not doing the slow stuff slow enough. enough or maybe yeah. you're just doing too much volume. Too much volume can make you more fatigued than actually doing perhaps two or at most three interval sessions per week. If the interval sessions are done right, I think as the first part of your planning, the easy stuff has to support that built around it. Oh, Thursday, I'm going to do my hard turbo. Right, Wednesday and Friday, you don't really want to set yourself up, which brings us back around to what that question was from Mr. Anonymous at the beginning. You know, you've really got to plan this out. And I'm sure this, you know, group of... Um, uh, biathletes and cross-country skiers they know what days they're going to do stuff because there's no random sudden peaks no, same, in, in yeah. what they do they always do stuff um i guess we could work it out from what they um what they monitored but you know their zone four uh and five is um it's something like about you know you look at it it's it's never an hour's worth of work per week OK, so they're never doing, you know, they're doing about half an hour's worth of quality work per week. Sometimes in peaking phase, it might be, you know, um, 40 minutes worth. But if you think about that, so they're Olympic people and per week in zone four and five, they're not ever doing a um, uh, an hour's worth of high quality. And of course, zone four and five is pretty difficult to do that. But it's the fact that it's the middle, you know, it's the middle band where they hardly touch the um you know that zone two stuff that that would typically be what a lot of people i think do their base training in and they um they des define their zone two as between 74 and 83 percent okay so what we'd call upper zone one right they did in upper zone one they basically did less than half an hour on average per week across the whole year when they got into the sort of um, early part of training, it's probably just because their heart rate went up. They were at 0.9 to 1.3 hours. But through most of the year, they were doing most of their, uh, what would it be, um, 10 to 14 hours of training 
in zone one. And let's repeat what zone one is. It's below 73% of heart rate. Um, and I found something the other day, and it was, I was just looking back on stuff for um, for the 220 um, triathlon show, which by the time this goes out, will probably have already been. But I was looking back at what was the advice 12 years ago in terms of base. And I was actually saying 70% of heart rate max, just because I think at that point I was thinking 80% sounds high and... I think in hindsight, that's probably not a bad thing. I know we say people go up to 80%, but they're saying that most of the time they actually spent it below 73%. So they're actually, you know, they're saying 54 to 73% of heart rate max, right? That's the majority of their week. They're spending it below that. And for some people, they're like, oh, I can't stay in zone one. And they're on about 80% of heart rate max. They can't stay in there. And I think that is the fundamental flaw with endurance training. If you can't stay below 80, and this would say actually below 75% of heart rate max for most of your training, sorry, you're not going to get it. You are not going to develop. And if there is always this training time, which in this protocol, it'd be up to zone three. If it's always something in zone three, you're then overtraining and this group of people rarely went um they rarely went above 30 minutes of zone three in the entire year per week it's, it is it is really interesting when you look at it all um especially kind of the layout of their zones um and obviously table four so the weekly training basically the, the table four says weekly training patterns during different phases uh throughout the season and it just gives you a breakdown of um you know sprint work strength worth endurance um training sessions for the week and zone one to zone five um but it, it is really interesting to see these guys pros you know kind of or elite guys i should say where they're actually doing majority of their training, even even on their, you know, overall it says, and then pre-peaking, peaking, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah. it's actually really interesting to see the breakdown from that point of view. Um, all right, based on based on heart rate, but they're a bit more specific with their zones yeah. as yeah. well. So yeah. you know, where whereas the line of thinking of well, surely zone three is better than zone two, and zone two is better than zone one. Yeah. So why should yeah. I just do all my training in in zone two? Well, you know, judging by this, the, the the elite guys as well, and from what we know, you know, they do you know most of it in that zone in that zone one. So yeah, and and low zone one. That was yeah. how I would define it. You know, they're on about it. They they term both of their zones one and two. They term low intensity, but the low low intensity is below seventy three percent, and and that is what they're doing the vast majority of their training. And I think. I think it, it, there's obviously there's a heck of a lot of people that want to be quicker. I don't think we I'm, all? Don't we all? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But sometimes people are so desperate to do it, they miss the point that you can't go out and be the, the, the hardest trainer out there because this isn't how it works. And it's not to say that you can't um, go uh, and do it, but there is a physiological, a cell level, call it a DNA level of speed limit that says, sorry, you can't go above that. And if you do, you'll actually not go and accelerate these processes and be even better than an Olympian. You'll actually 
overstress the body, you will overtrain in a different way to which most people think about overtraining. You're actually overexerting. You're constantly asking too much of your body. And the more you do that, the more you don't get fit. So the more you go back and do it and people get this continual, yeah, but I can't slow down now. Here comes a race. But if you do the right level of training, what will come out will be your potential genetic ability. There's nothing where you take, you know, their data and you apply it to people with VO2 maxes of 50 and they'll also go up to 80. These people were probably handpicked when they were less than 10 years of age and were straight away, um, straight away had a genetic ability. Mm. Training polishes genes, okay? But just because you train harder than the next person, it won't polish your genes no, more. No, no, no. It'll actually, ironically, it'll make it too hard work you'll be the person that doesn't seem to be getting better when other people seem to be, you know, they're always out training and seem to be smiling and they do quite well. Um, there's a, there's a, you know, a few measures you can do of people and find out who's actually got um, potential. And yes, there's, there's hard work, but there's this overlying rule that is a, it's a cellular level rule that says, don't try and do more than, let's say, three quarters of your training above zone one because if you do you won't be finding a secret tunnel to pop up and be fitter than the next person you'll actually be over training and that to me is junk training that's the definition of junk training you are doing far too much work in not only um zone um what i would call zone two or at or around just below threshold these people defined it as zone three but that kind of area that isn't really hard hard but it's hard enough to tire you out. They hardly touch it. They do it less than half an hour a week. So when people are doing quite a few sessions and they'll do half an hour in perhaps a two and a half hour bike ride, they'll do half an hour right then. But that's not the only time they do it. They do it in another session because they push themselves and there's a 10 minute bit of a swim session whereby they um, have gone into zone two or they go out mountain biking and they pick too too much of a hard fitness route and be absolutely blowing out their backside and it wasn't meant to be a hard day but they do it too often and of course you can get through it blimey you can survive this stuff yeah, i've seen yeah. people have massive amounts of zone two and potentially bits of zone three but all they get is tired all they get is you know falling asleep late on a sunday afternoon when everybody else is feeling chipper they're feeling absolutely exhausted um, and ironically they're making themselves worse than what it could be um, and this study, if you follow the link on Twitter, which will be um, put out the day that this goes out, um, click on it. You don't have to be Einstein to work it out. You don't have to be Einstein to look at the graphs and to get the gist of what it shows. And these people are uber fit. They are, um, I think it even gives what their um, eventual uh, performances were in terms of um, what they were doing. It talks about how they were using um, altitude training. It's kind of a real, you know, this is this is what the, the clarity of um, post sort of, uh, should we say, post doping, um, <gasps> post doping. And there's much more, there's much more openness to, to what actually goes on. Not to say there aren't people that are still doing no, it, but no. the more there's this openness, the more you realise that, you know, it's about methodically training these people to recover and the fact that they spend their life doing this and you know when they're not doing their training they're learning to relax which is a great thing for people to do if they want to recover from training they learn to you know do their additional stuff which wasn't just um skiing uh, there's obviously in biathletes there's a need for them to be able to shoot straight and there's a need for them to be you know probably you know conditioned and and sort sort out their equipment and stuff but have a look at it i'm sure 
it will nudge some people hopefully into um tweaking their methods it is and and like joe said it's it's, it's laid out quite nicely layman terms got pictures as well <laughs> <laughs> yeah you like the pictures yeah, don't yeah, you? Yeah. but see we are we look outside um it's dark now we look outside you look at a tree nobody has to tell you that's a tree you work it out whereas when you look at a table of numbers it can be daunting for some people to look at it and go what the hell does that mean you know what does what does x with a line over the top of it mean i don't know what that means what does it miss mean you know and then you get you get funny um uh, funny kind of uh, interpretations of, of statistics and stuff. This stuff shows it, I think, in a very accessible format. And there's nothing there that, that when I looked at it, I thought, oh, no, that's totally gone against what I've been thinking about and the model I've been trying to think best. How do we prepare people for endurance? It's got some pretty standard, what I would think of as standard um, tips for how to train and yes these people are you know in a winter sport but that doesn't turn on its head just because you're doing a summer sport i'll send you it martin you can read it thank you you can have a lovely winter's evening reading it yeah so you, you didn't see his face it was hilarious so what do we know then what do we know um this, know, is where, this is where it goes silent for a while, no. so I will do some music in the background. Just some musical interlude. Yes. Um, well, I know for a fact that it's it's not as dark at half past five as it used to be. Good. So we're getting there. Yes. But it's not to say that the weather, A, has got any better or, or B, has uh, got any warmer. Okay. So, but... Okay, so sorry if you thought this wasn't the weather channel, it probably is at the moment. No, I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with the weather, but but then again, there's, there was, there's no um, inappropriate weather. Just inappropriate clothing. Right. On to whole beetroot consumption. Oh. Come on. Oh. See, Joe, Joe hides this from me now. I do. I hide this. Because otherwise you, you start making me laugh and you start going, oh, what have you got there? What have you got there? Um, interestingly, because there's obviously products out there that are um, nitrate, um, what should we say, nitrate enriched or nitrate specific heavy. things. Nitrate heavy. Like it. Um, this was a study from the Journal of the... Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. This was out a couple of years ago, but it's about whole beetroot. And people might think, what, what's this all about? Well, basically, they took whole beetroot, they looked at runners, and they looked at, um, you know, this this could, could a, uh, a period of eating beetroot help people to perform. Um, yes, there was a, um, uh, there was a, um, uh, should we say a, a, an improvement? And they said something like um, blah, 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 uh, consumption of um, nitrate rich whole beetroot improves running performance in healthy adults, um, blah, 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 blah. But interestingly, they actually um, they say how they got it and they just bought this beetroot from a local. Joe has highlighted most of this. Yeah, well, just so I can read the right yeah, bits, no, no, right? No, I, I and it, it says, and here we go, this, this, is, this is where we know. Most people would get this in a five-line piece that comes up on, you know, various websites that read the abstract instead of reading the whole thing. And it can say it wrong or it can say it and misinterpret it. But they actually go into beetroot was baked 90 minutes at 177 degrees C. <laughs> Merry Berry. <laughs> in a commercial oven, Wolf Range slash oven, ITW food equipment, etc. So it's going into all the details, um, which it does not alter the nitrate content. And then they go into the food processor, an R2 Ultra. So they really specifically talk about it. And then they put a bit of lemon juice and a bit of nutmeg and cinnamon so that if people were having the placebo they would also just say oh it was kind of cinnamony cinnamony nutmeg and therefore people wouldn't know 
whether they had the beetroot and stuff. Otherwise, somebody will say, oh, mine didn't taste of that. I must be on the placebo. Yeah, I must be on the other one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they gave people... Uh, they also analysed it to see how much was in there. And there was over 500 milligrams of nitrate um, for each of the uh, amounts that they gave. And I'm trying to think what how much they gave people. Um, I'll have a look in a second. Uh, I think it was something like... 200 grams i'll have to check on on that exact quantity but you know they took it yeah 200 gram portions with the same flavor were given to people so you know 200 grams of beetroot uh we don't know exactly where this beetroot is from it was just you know it was fresh from a local supermarket but you know there's some there's some really you eat some beetroot and there's no flavor and you think that hasn't got much in it at all it's red and you eat it but it's not got a lot in it so if you can get um, more local if you grow it yourself if you can get it close to source that's probably going to help the nitrate content um, though we don't know and without you know getting it measured you're not going to know so I can see the benefit of having one of these products like say James White's beetroot juice or shots to actually guarantee the nitrate level but these people they made it cooked it so it's perfectly natural you know food at 200 uh, grams of it and um, I think about eight hours later, they, they did this, the, the particular sort of study. But this one is, uh, is available, is online. But it was one of these things where they took something that, you know what, if you think, crikey, that's expensive stuff to buy. Well, just cook some beetroot. You know, 200 grams, that is enough to hopefully help your performance. Um, they gave it a, um, a kind of thumbs up to say, yeah, there's, there's certainly an effect and it builds on a massive amount there's been a recent review on the whole area of um nitrate supplementation yeah it 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 works for the most part and if it's a case of you like beetroot and eating it during key phases of training and up to races is something that fits with you they've yet to find it makes you worse and in some people's case it absolutely is one of those wow it feels really good so what why why does the nitrate make you or possibly could make you perform a bit better. I knew you were going to ask me that. Um, there's ver- there's various potential mechanisms to do with blood flow. Right. Potentially, it could also be the actual muscle fibres themselves as well as blood flow. Um, and hence, there's a health uh, aspect to having beetroot. So for people in terms of um, sort of circulation or general health, beetroot is, you know, is, is the sort of new superfood. And there's quite a few studies that show that even at relatively low levels, the fact that the nitrate affects the muscle and cardiovascular systems efficiency means that the the load on the body is reduced, even though they're, you know, perhaps walking at six miles an hour, it um it's actually, you know, or five miles an hour probably. Um, not people they're into a jog at sort of five to six, aren't they? But there's various levels where even things you think, wow, that's not very challenging. It shows up that the body's more effective. There's generally a slight drop in blood pressure. The whole system works better. And for something that you know, I love, I love beetroot. Any excuse to drink it or eat it, I love it. I know some people hate it, but if you think, well, actually, that's a superfood that. Yes, you could OTT on it and have too much of it. Um, there's some downsides to having beetroot when you load up on it because um, basically uh, your number ones and number twos go purple. And if All you've, right. If you've, oh, yes, but if sorry you, if you're eating. Yeah, sorry if you're eating. Um, or you've just spat out your um, your your uh, 
your breakfast bar and your coffee. Yeah, yeah, your sandwich on the train. Um, but that happens, and if people don't know that's going to happen or forget that they're having beetroot at that time, that can be sheer panic. That, that can be sheer panic of what the hell's going on? Oh yeah, of course I'm on the beetroot. But the, but it's relatively new, isn't it, on the scene beetroot oh, as far yeah, as yeah, kind yeah, of. Yeah. I always hate to say it, but as far as a performance enhancer, I kind of... Yes, it is a performance yeah, enhancer. Yeah. But, yeah. but the, the studies are still ongoing um, to find out, you know, whether there is a, an exact amount that you can take to, you know, not to guarantee. I know there's never mm, a guarantee mm. with it, but um, I know, like you said, with the, with the, with the beat it shots, you know, most of them come in, in, mm. in just little uh, concentrated shots. So, you know, they, they've either got to the point where they've, they've worked it out Mm. roughly what would mm. give you the most nitrate per per shot that the b- body aid must, must be able to absorb. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, like they said, it's still relatively new. Mm. But um, there is some updates to that. I think it might take a bit more than what some of the tests have, have actually used. It might be nearer to... Um, four litres. Four <laughs> litres, no, to eight, eight millimole level, which I'd have to convert that into, into grams of, um, of, uh, of sort of beetroot or beetroot juice. But... They think there might be not more is better, but there might be a little bit more required than what they've thought so far. And I know, and I'll get some time to find it out. I know that I always used to, when I was very young into running, I always used to love my dad's beetroot. And I've got a diary where I know that I was eating loads of beetroot. And and it was a total fluke. It wasn't, and I just went back and went, blimey, that was such a fluke because I didn't know. I just loved the stuff, and it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh look, I was eating beetroot. I knew what I was doing. No, it was just something I really loved. But it was in my training diary, yeah. and I just thought, wow, that's an absolute fluke to like something that actually is a yeah, it's a performance enhancer. Well, but if you have too much of it and you get the red yeah. stuff, you can think, blimey, I've done myself some damage. I've done myself a mischief. But then what Joe didn't mention is that on top of the. Uh, I love my dad's beetroot was I've just eaten 14 sausages. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love those too as could, well. Could be, could be, could be a performance enhancer. Could be, absolutely. Um, so I thought you'd like that about beetroot. No, I like it. That's good. Because we are, we are quite lucky because um, Exeter University, which is kind of just down the road. 50, well, 50 miles that 50 way. Miles, 50 miles that way. That at way, Joe's, At Joe's point, roughly. Yeah. Um, so, so if you're listening, it's a kind of pointing across for your headphones. Um, think about me pointing from roughly where your left ear is across over to your right ear. Yeah, that, that, that's effectively that's the direction. Joe's pointing. But it, we're, we're quite lucky with that because the guys are, are relatively close to us and uh, um, I think if, if, if Joe... Joe would probably know a few that might be uh, either participating or, or, or doing the, or was doing the study. I had, I had an email to take part in the study, the first stuff that came around, yeah. Oh, there yeah. you go. Um, total change now, total slant. Completely different, completely different sport, just something that I thought was very interesting and wonder whether there's repercussions for other sports. But um, it was actually from a humongous paper on the whole aerodynamics of sport and sports equipment and sports clothing and lo and behold there was something about um it was about ski jumping all right yeah i've been watching a lot of this when when you mentioned kind of cross-country skiing and biathlon i'm not the celebrity ski jumping jumping. (laughs) but this this is brilliant yeah but and i never never thought about this because i saw this graph and i'll show you the graph and you can work that one out can't you it's dropping from left to right okay yeah thanks. so what's happened in 1970 the average body mass index of the ski jumpers was around 23 and a half 
Okay, um, and so that means there that's their height to weight comparison. Take your weight in kilograms, divide it by your height in meters, and then divide it by your height in meters again. Okay, so most lean athletic people are down in the you know 19, 20, 21s, 22s, and people that are you know either very thick set, muscular, or overweight. Um, would be 25, 26, 27. It doesn't tell you what that body mass is made up of, but it just tells you the total density of their height. Anyway, it's been dropping and it's been dropping every uh, so often in terms of, uh, that must be a miss, miss thing, that must be 1990, they got that one wrong, because it doesn't go 1970, 1986, 1970, does it? So from left to right, in 1970 is at 23, by the time you got to 1990, 20 years later, it had dropped to 20 and a half and then um, the Olympic Games in 2006 it had dropped down to 19.5 so um, you could work that out in terms of how many kilos that meant but it was starting to get uh, to a point where they then thought we've got to do something about this and um, interestingly they then changed the rules in um, ski jumping because what they were doing was finding they were trying to get they were jumper the same as a high jumper so they were basically realizing that there was too much um, of a um, basically an incidence increasing or certainly aware of um, like athletic um, anorexia because if they could be lighter and lighter and lighter they'd go further off of the ski jump so what they actually bought in um, was um, if they if they were under a BMI of 20, they would reduce the length of the skis. And if they were under a BMI of 17 and a half, they were not allowed to participate in the competition. Well, it seems... Well, they're, they're, yeah. But that, up to then, do you know what they'd done? They'd had it where it was based on height. So um, if they were... Um, if they were shorter, they'd have shorter skis. But then they started realising that actually um, the intention was to reduce the positive lift force acting on the ski jumper during the flight, hence reducing the positive effect of being light. And I thought that was so clever. It's almost like the UCI rules in having a light bike, but it'd be a case of, right, bike and rider must be below a certain yeah, weight. Yeah. So this stopped, or they hope, I haven't seen the subsequent stuff from it, but they said that it was um, it was a way of trying to change the equipment to stop people from getting ever lighter. And I thought, what? A, I never knew about this at all. This was totally today. I went, wow, that's that's really clever. So at a certain BMI, you're not allowed to compete. And I thought that was a really clever way of actually looking after, after the yeah. athlete's yeah. health. Yeah. Which, which which a lot of sports don't do, do no, they? I know. Yeah, there was the fifty percent hematocrit brought into cycling, but that was more to calm down what was going on rather than actually health of the rider yeah, per to, se. It, it helped, yeah. but this was actually changing the equipment to say if you're going to be too light, we are going to make your skis shorter so you don't get the lift off the skis. And I thought that was so clever. But yeah, but it kind of it makes. I think to us it makes common sense. Yeah, but. A lot of sports, there's so much money in it, there's so much to lose. Yeah. It gets, it must get to that point where they go, well, it's just, it doesn't matter. We'll, we'll just turn the personnel around a couple of times, don't we? Uh, you know, every five years, and uh, oh, it would, as long as the money keeps coming in, it's fine. But yeah, no one really, really looks after their, their, yeah. their, their, their kind of their, their sporting people. But yeah, I was good.
You like that? Didn't I like you? that. Yeah. I thought that was it's interesting, one... and I know that probably changes very little about you know somebody who's listening to this and saying, "No, no, no, I want to get quicker. Tell me something. To, tell, tell me something good." But actually, something like that um, just gets you thinking about you know how light people have to make themselves to be um, great at, at jumping, but how a positive rule change like that can actually help people. Um, really to to not really damage themselves once you start getting below bmis of sort of 19 and 18 blimey you are you know there's there's very little left on the person by then yeah and we've we've all seen it we've all seen people that kind of take uh, take training and 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 their diet to the nth degree but you know you, you like joe always says you've only got a certain amount of candles to burn a certain amount of wicks to burn and uh once you've burnt them all that's it you're done so um but no, I like those jars. I was wondering why you were hiding a stack of uh, stack of paper from me. Yeah, I just wanted to bring in something a, a bit different, really. I like it. That's yeah. good. And and it's not going to change uh, what you what you do, but I think it's just one of those interesting things. Really, sometimes it's just nice to sort of think about things in a different way because it makes you then think about, because yeah, couldn't they apply that BMI thing to to runners, or couldn't they do that to you know high jumpers and and stuff like that, or could they you know change the weight limits on you know mountain bikes or triathlon bikes or whatever? There's a, there's always a sense that you should be able to use rules not just um, to to limit how much people can. Um, Develop people's advantages advantages but also to, to kind of keep things from going astray by the fact that you look after the athlete which um we were just after the um the the missed the missed hour record by decca weren't we yes we, we came on to uh record this podcast just as it had finished we were just checking um supposedly um of all the things you wanted for an hour record the clock wasn't quite working correctly so they didn't quite know how far he'd missed out by and and for whatever reason had had a, a a delay of 5 minutes to work out exactly that he hadn't done what was it 52.250 he'd lost 29 meters because they'd miscalculated the last bit because when you when you finish the hour you don't stop you have to do one more lap for them to work out at what point over that last lap were you at the hour so you generally find that's the one where they give the quick spurt because if they can get a bit further around in that very last lap it can actually because it's based on the average time and how they calculate where they are they can gain an extra bit but something went wrong and they didn't know what he'd actually done they'd known he'd missed but they didn't realize he'd missed by like the bit. and but we worked it out what did we work it out to be seven points was it seven point zero five or seven point seven point five centimeters per second per second which doesn't sound that. a lot but until it starts adding up and you realise, you know, after 10 minutes, he's about three and a bit metres down. OK, you can get that back. That's fine. And then after... But he wasn't down. He was kind of... He was OK. I've yet to see the graph, but it, the pace dropped in the latter phase of the ride. Not as bad as some of the recent attempts where people have gone way too fast and just crumbled. It's got to be a quite optimum pace. But it, it makes me laugh. You would think a clock, a decent clock slash stopwatch would be essential for the hour record. <laughs> for the hour record. Hence a rider and a bicycle. <laughs> and one hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. So, yeah. And one yeah. hour and a few seconds. And where was this to? In Mexico. Oh, is it? I was, he would say it was in Switzerland. <laughs> yeah, in Switzerland. No, is it Mexico? So this was one of the um, few times that people have gone back to altitude um, 
Merckx when he did it in seventy two was um you know was 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 at altitude. Moser on my um on my wall, you know he did some of his attempts at the hour record at altitude, and then people moved away from it because they felt that the the oxygen reduction wasn't worth the reduction in air density mm. that you get, etc., etc. And actually, there was uh, there was a cyclist in I think it's about the eighteen eighties um, that did it first of all in Colorado, and in in eighteen eighties that would have been you know wow because Colorado being at altitude. So. When people say, oh, Merckx was one of the few ones to go to altitude. No, he wasn't. Somebody did it, you know, what, about 80 years before he did it. There you go. I'm a mind of useless information. You are Particularly not about the hour record. <laughs> um, so I think we've done some questions. We've got some research updates. We've um, told you about the road to gold, though don't just start just yet getting the road to gold. Um, we've done an hour's worth of um, quality there, I reckon, Martin. Very good. Very good. Yeah. What what we need what do we we need to set down some parameters for next month, I reckon. Well just get your questions in. That's the that's the thing, is that uh, what you what do you mean in terms of what people have got to do or what we want people to do? Or? Yeah, what we'd like people to actually question us about oh, per se. Oh, just you know, th think think beyond how many percent do I need to do in zone one and you know, should I be true every day of my life from now on and stuff like that? Think a little bit more lateral. It's hard to put, you know, a, a brand to brand comparison because um, there's probably very good um, magazines and reviews that can, you know, compare, you know, this wetsuit and this front light and this, you know, tire etc etc but i think some of the you know oh i've got this really difficult one my mate does this type of training and thinks it's brilliant but i do this what should we do and you know just just some of the things that particularly when there is inter intergroup kind of like opinions about stuff and i'm not going to say that we you know can absolutely tell you smack bang this is the right way and this other way is the wrong way there's there's certain interpretations to a lot of things but it is quite good to get stuff that we haven't gone over and can sometimes be a little bit left field about still learning to perhaps take that lesson into swimming, even though it's a question about, you know, running or whatever. I, I think there's a lot more questions to be answered about people's individual scenarios because people can't plan like those pros and say, yeah, this is how many hours we're going to do. And we've got all this recovery time. Most people are very, time constrained and time crunched um oh we could do a book on that couldn't you yes look at that martin's got his hand in the air there we go um and i think they're they're interesting because they're you know oh i do you know five days on and four days off and i do this you know in terms of my shifts or i i can only train at this time of the day when should i do my quality i think the real nitty-gritty of people's different scenarios is interesting because a lot of the backdrop to it is being done in research and magazines and blimey you know that base thing crikey the amount of times i've said it i'm just gonna make people sick of it so i want i want to have something different but it's nice to go back and to say look these are the people with gold medals this is what they do so let's take it from them but i think there's there's a few more people out there that have got interesting questions that aren't just 
easily covered in a oh i think it's x because i've seen this particular person do it i think there's some you know some interesting interpretations about well actually you could do it this way or you could do it that way or um you know or perhaps you send us a question and say right tell us in a month's time we realize we've you know we've obviously still got to go back over the um the, the supplements hierarchy um and next month we will um do the uh, competition winner who is going to uh, receive you've still got um, a few days we'll extend it a couple more days um the uh, the, the no pins um 50 60 let's stretch it to 70 pounds i think they've said where you can win it if you tell us what is the um what is the type of can you remember martin what is the type of lycra in the super suit wouldn't it i think yeah, yeah. there you go yeah, yeah. yeah you're reading it from the yeah yeah. Oh, so, there it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There it is. Yeah. You knew all along. You knew all along. Um, so um, the the only um, final things um, update wise uh, that I would um, like to uh, basically say um, there is a try. Sorry, there is a sportive um, camp being um, finalised for. July 2015, a altitude sportive camp in the Alps. Who is this altitude? Altitude, yeah, I know. Um, also, um, up on the jbst.com website, uh, there's uh, details of um, endurance. If you click on the logo, and this is um, blood profiling. I've just got to get something to show Martin, which is this is this is my physiology notes and just to just to um show you that way back in what's the what's the date on the top of that hematology six of the third 89 were you born then martin <laughs> yes <laughs> thank you granddad <laughs> it was yes. Whoa. <laughs> so that's that's a he that's a hematology um breakdown of 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 blood and it was um what was it it was uh oh yeah hemoglobin levels of uh 13.5 which most people will know for for an adult male is a little bit low um but this was the beginnings of endurance this was what got me years ago thinking about if you can find out about different levels of um uh blood profile in an individual you can see whether their body is responding to training or not, not just the level of um, red blood cell size or the haemoglobin, but go further into vitamin D stores, um, testosterone level, all that kind of stuff, and just basically give your body an MOT. And that's what endurance is about. And um, there's there's lots of people, I think, that guess. How do I know if you need enough vitamin D? or whether you've got enough, or whether you are chronically low in this. And this takes the guesswork out. And I've had a few of these along the way, and there's been times when I've done it, and I put it to the right sports doctor and say, can you just check this out? And they say, oh, this is this is okay, fine, fine, but change this and this. But that's all fine if you've got mates that are sports doctors that can do things like that, and you know what you're looking for, but it's not really a good way for you to manage somebody or to self-manage so to turn it into something where people can get this and just say well what what state am i in give me an mot and then look at me and find if there's things are fine say brilliant 
whatever you do in your diet and your training right now your body is is getting the you know the same as your car getting fine it fi it flew through the mot you haven't got any issues but when you get that one that says oh that tire's low and that that when that wiper blade's going to be doing doing uh, nobody any good you're gonna have to change that blah 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 that's what happens with this you start to uncover things and we've seen some amazing amazing effects when people realize that they they are not because we don't know that everything we eat is absolutely balanced to give us all of our a b c d etc vitamins and all the other stuff so this is this is it have a look at it see what you think because i've seen the profile that's been done haven't I? The the paperwork that comes. Oh yeah, you did. Yeah. yeah. Which is which which I thought looking at it was going to be one of those things where you go, oh my lord, what what is this? But it's actually laid out perfectly because even yeah. an idiot like myself understood from Joe's. Um, basically, it'll be break it'll be broken down, won't it? To, yeah. to explain. performance range, yeah. lab range, depleted, toxic, etc. And it's 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 changed slightly there is an there is another um version of of what it looks like um in terms of beta testing something like that you have to be able to sort of go through the the, the nitty-gritty of um what it is that um that, that somebody's actually um looking for in terms yeah. of you know their their particular so that's one particular thing where you see red blood cell hemoglobin plasma um plate so platelet count um neutrophil count blah 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 but um the whole point is is you know you kind of you sample somebody you look at their reports you change things and then you retest and that's really what you do with training you you give somebody an idea of what they do they do the training they go back they do a, a sub max test to somebody attracted to today i haven't spoken to for two weeks and yeah 12 beats down at 200 watts and most benchmarks across each 25 watt point were down three to seven beats you're like okay from when you were before you're fitter if we can keep doing that that's fitter this is a way of sort of saying let's look at the the blood and see what your diet and training are doing to you because they could be making you one heck of a very unwell person if you keep pushing it to the extent that it you know just keeps going and going and um the um i think the point of this is to, is to try and take away the the sort of guesswork um and allow um somebody within say like a like a b12 level to know are they quite high up and they're taking enough is it really low and that's going to affect x y and z or is it or is it something where by you know i look back at the 13.3 and think blimey i'm i'm up to 14.4 and more now and after training camp it went up again which is what we're going to show yes, this thing yeah. pre-camp post-camp you can see that it's doing you good because you can look at these things and say wow this this number's still good which means i'm not overtrained. this number's changed great that's gone up a level and that that i think is is worth you protecting yourself and taking the guesswork out of do i need to do a lot more or am i just tired or mm. or is my diet really good and my body manages to do a lot with it or is it absolutely pants and i need to spend more time you know preparing good food and less time going out and doing another run or another swim yeah. <laughs> um and until now we've all been guessing you know uh, the the data that i've got that i just showed you now i was told based on those numbers to do a few things back then and it happened in a roundabouts way and it definitely made a difference and it was just from one particular number somebody said you've got to do something about that and and that put that thought process in my brain and there was something um 
I haven't got the picture here, but there was something that then a few years later I wrote about it in Triathlete magazine because somebody started doing it. And there was a couple articles on people looking at blood profiling and starting to look at things. And now it's just it's gone all the way now to a point where we've got the we've got the levels of testing that can be done, you know, quick so that you get stuff back rather than three weeks later, you get stuff back within three or four days. So you can make immediate assessment and you can therefore make changes or say great everything's fine therefore you don't spend three weeks thinking am i all right or aren't i because yeah, i murdered anything because <laughs> i murdered anything is that yeah. good news or is that yeah. bad news um, and i just think it's one of those things that is going to be um a, a kind of it won't be for everybody but it will be something where it allows you to get your your health in check it allows you to use your supplements or your diet to actually be for you not just i've read something about zinc do i start taking zinc now you can check your body see how it is and if it's thumbs up then great you're looking after yourself but if it's not blimey there's some where you think blimey sit down we need a lot of things to tweak in what you do because you might look like you're training well but what's happening deep down is absolutely just about to go belly up and then what's the point in somebody oh they were so fit but next minute they were absolutely just flattened by doing too much so that's that's the thing that i think is going to be um it's going to be not the game changer there's too many of those happening all the time oh it changes this it changes that i just think it's a new way of looking at how well are you looking after yourself in terms of training balance in terms of the nutrients you take in in terms of how your body is responding to all of that i wish you'd had it 20 years ago it'd have been brilliant to be able to have more of those numbers um and i'm actually going to get a sports doctor to look at some of those numbers and say what can you tell about what was going on then and almost give a biological passport because if, if i've seen data then i was retested again in the mid 90s there's probably blood data i could find from my doctor that's happened at some time or other but it's piecing it all together if you can have it as a proper profile you can watch that your body isn't falling into its own traps and ends up always you know depleting in something um and there's a particular example of a particular athlete that we changed a particular supplement and lo and behold their performances already this year are just boom and we're like we know that was down to very specifically finding what was just not quite right and it was only a tiny thing but it made all the difference. And if that is is somebody that's looking after themselves, what's it going to be for somebody that really doesn't know what that's they're the, doing? That's the thing. And well, hasn't yeah. really looked after themselves, but loves their training and loves doing, you know, their um, you know, their enduros or their Ironmans or their long distance swims or whatever. If you can protect that by looking after yourself, I think it's a it's a you know, it's going to supersede VO two max because that's fairly irrelevant if you don't know what's going on underneath. It's going to be something that doesn't just give you a number it gives you actions with which to go ahead and change this or or say you're doing fine but <laughs> whatever you're doing you know what you're doing because we can see it's all okay but there's yet to be somebody where we haven't found something that's that's what people need um also is is it's a well go oh no you're a bit low on this bit low, a bit high on that you know but uh you know they, they need something almost a direction just to say look this is how you can adjust yeah. it this is how you can make things better this is how you can etc etc so yeah yeah good and it's about it's about tying that in with um one of the um endurance um sports doctors to actually 
take you through the things that you need to know about but not take you through the things you don't need to know about some people get too much information and they're just bombarded by it and they go yeah it's an eight page report it was from a test i don't know what it means if you can have somebody say look this this and this this is what we suggest you do then you don't overly um confuse them by giving them too much data because that's that's pointless if things are fine leave it alone but if things aren't you need to um, look at um, potentially tweaking stuff to say, right, this is this is what's flagged up as being your weak links. This might relate to your training. This might relate to your general diet. This might relate to something you've got to specifically change in your diet and or supplement to get that back in check. Yeah. Because we cannot be assured that everyone's eating the, in inverted commas, you know, balanced diet. It's It's... First is not what lots of people eat. They like to eat a little bit of junk. They like to have their favourite foods. They like to have stuff, you know, that doesn't always fit into the perfect, you know, five a day or or even want to eat certain food kits, food kits, food stuffs. Um, and I think it's going to change the way we look at um, finding out how people are actually deep down inside because your training can sometimes look quite good. And then you look at the person themselves and outside of training, think. They're just they're just wrecked. They they you know they can deliver training, but they're like a they're like a, a bag of bones, and they're like a really miserable person when they're not training. And sometimes then... people just want to hug you. <laughs> That's what happens. Sometimes people hey, just want to hug. You could just start that. It's called Martin Hugs You. You <laughs> no, know. Dot but... com. I've spoken to the police. Apparently, you're not allowed to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. Anyway, so that on... looks really good. That looks good. Yeah, and it's um if if. Uh... If you didn't go to the Tri Show, therefore you didn't see it, um, go to in, Endurance, I-N-D-U-R-A-N-C-E, endurance.co.uk and have a look at it. So, another podcast, uh, as per the um, original review that we got from Tony, if you can add your reviews, we'd really appreciate it. You know, by all means, you know, absolutely tell us what you uh, what you think. There was a follow-up to one we got, which was from um, Van Skate in November, and I need to follow up that person's uh, response. Uh, so I have got your response if you're listening to this and you haven't got an email back from me yet. Um, that's what training camps do. It just it just uh, takes far too much time up, Martin. Um, contact us via uh, jbst.com or the Twitter link or snail mail snail mail snail mail yeah jbst.com at mac.com there we go quick enough any spammers couldn't hear that you ready i'm ready yes spring's almost here people yes i knew i <laughs> knew on. you were gonna say hold that on. i knew just you were gonna hold say on that. Just, i knew you were gonna say that clocks were changing about what a month oh, almost S- yeah. something like that it's so again here. thank you for listening um we've uh got up to the uh hour 20 point if it's very cleverly done, uh, Henry might even put the uh, the little mic test after we finish. You never know. So, remember, train smart and... Have fun. This is... <laughs> this is me five is, miles yeah, away. This is me five miles away from, from the um, uh, microphone doing one, a deliberate test of distance. One, one, one.